You are listening to episode 94 of the Tennis Files podcast, a preview of some of the sessions from Tennis Summit 2019. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. My name is Mirban Aranshad and I bring you these weekly podcasts to help you improve your tennis game and bring it to the next level. And a lot of times I have interviews with top pros and coaches and other experts and sometimes I take it solo and talk about tennis myself. Uh, Today is uh, an interesting hybrid really where I will be talking a little bit but for the most part I'm going to be giving you a preview of a few of the sessions for Tennis Summit 2019. As you probably listened to on the previous episode I explained uh, what Tennis Summit 2019 is all about, how it's the third year of this uh, free online tennis conference that I host with over 30 Uh, world-class coaches and experts that will help you win more matches. And uh, so if you want to learn more about what that's all about, you can check out episode 93 or just go to tennisfiles.com slash summit19 or tennisfilesummit.com, which is the main URL there. But in any case, I want to go through a couple of the sessions to kind of give you a teaser, uh, you know, a taste of what the sessions will be about. Obviously, this is a small subset of the sessions, but I want to bring you four today. Uh, And the first one is going to be uh, from Ian Westerman from Essential Tennis. And his session is on how to wreak havoc on your opponents using the eye in Australian formations. So let's run that clip right now. And so today we're going to get into, as I mentioned, the I-Formation and Australian formations. And I'm sure that many of you, depending on your level, haven't uh, employed these uh, formations that much. But I think it's going to be really super useful to uh, get into the weeds of, of the formations as well, as well as the basics too. And uh, so that you can try and implement these in your game. But uh, first off, uh, Ian, I mean, I did touch upon this a slight bit, but I want you to expand on it if you'd like, uh, if you can. Uh, what is the, what are the main benefits uh, and what is the point of uh, using these plays in your doubles game? Yeah, I agree with what you just said. Different formations are not used nearly enough in amateur tennis and amateur doubles. In fact, I would say Literally 99% of the time when you go to just a local you know, park or club, uh, as you mentioned, I worked at Congressional and uh, the full-time coaches there, it was our job to lead team practice for, we had eight or nine different ladies doubles teams. And so I don't remember how many players, but, but during the summer, it's really was, was our primary focus was helping them get ready for matches and trying to train them and show them and develop them. Uh, into better players and give them better tactics and strategies. And it was like pulling teeth, trying to get them to do something out of the ordinary. And that in a nutshell is the primary benefit of both the Australian and the I formation 
is it's a completely different look. It forces the returner to have to do something completely different or at the very least consider that, man, I, I just can't, the status quo is just not going to work anymore. And I think in doubles, when you have that asset of a net player up at the net, if they're not being fully utilized to make the returner really uncomfortable, if the returner is not second guessing everything that they do, every point, then you're just not doing your job. And unfortunately, for most levels of doubles and, and uh, most situations in amateur doubles, cross court is essentially an open shot. It's just a free shot, uh, meaning it's just available. And everybody knows that's like the normal way of playing doubles is the server hits the ball in the box and the returner covers their alley. I'm sorry, the server's partner covers their alley. And so the returner just kind of takes it for granted that they have an open alley or lane to hit to. I shouldn't use the word alley. They have an open lane to hit to cross courts. And sure, the net player might try to do a little bit of poaching and kind of moving a little bit. But I think most of the people watching this feel and know that usually that's not enough. Like they'll kind of make like, oh, uh, maybe I'm going to poach on this one. They'll make a step, but the ball just goes past them. And then the next ball, they're like, oh, make a step, but it goes past them. Like they're not quite active enough to really be in the way and really be a, a legitimate threat. And so what Australian and I formations do is they take the net player, remove the net player from that standard position and put them right in the middle of the normal lane that the returner has to hit to. And so it forces the returner to make some big decisions and big tactical adjustments as far as where they're aiming with that very first shot of the point, which is the most important shot of the point for them. That's a wonderful explanation there, Ian. And I actually had a 9-5 um, combo match last night, a USTA League match. And I mean, we had a we for, were fortunate to win in three sets, but our, one of our opponents, and he's actually an older guy, I think he's like in his 50s, but he it was extremely hard to deal with him at the net. I mean, he was constantly moving, uh, you know, one way or the other and employing different formations. And, you know, I would hit a big, cross court uh, return and you'd be right there sometimes. So I had to, you know, pick and choose. Okay. Like let's, you know, I should probably test him this point, but you know, the main thing is, that you were talking about is I didn't know where he was going to be. And like, and that's yeah. the type of doubles that you want to be playing. Uh, and you know, with, with Ian's help today, uh, you're going to be able to employ these formations <laughs> and not have any fear about, you know, how tough they may be. And, and that's one thing too, Ian. I mean, I think a lot of players, they, they are fearful when they hear these formations, like, Oh, I don't, I don't know what this is. Like, it sounds like too advanced. Like I'm only a three, five or something. So I shouldn't use these. So how easy sure. is it? Um, in particular, maybe we can touch on the Australian first, or you can touch upon both formations. Um, how easy is it actually to, to use? Yeah, it is intimidating, you know, by it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Like when, when you use different formations, the returner suddenly has all this uncertainty and doubt about, okay, what's, what's happening and what is now safe? In, in normal doubles play, there's very clear cut, like this is the safe part of the court, this is the unsafe part of the court. And to a certain extent, you can, you can combat that just with poaching. But I've, in my experience, most of the poaching efforts by most levels of doubles players just don't do the job. They just don't really get the job done as far as really making the returner uncomfortable. And so the Australian formation is really easy. 
Now, it's totally different than what players are used to. That's the challenging part is you, you have to get your partner on board with doing something different. And different scares the crap out of most people. Uh, but just keep in mind, I would say my big message to everybody watching would be, yes, it's different for you. But by the, the same token, it's totally different for the other side as well. And you are in the driver's seat. You're the one that's in control of how this point and every point where you're serving begins. And so you are making the decision. And inaction is a decision in and of itself uh, to just continue going with the status quo and allow the returner to be comfortable and groove the return and be confident and have a reliable target to aim for. So Australian, which we'll touch on the specifics in a second, really easy to execute. I'll be honest, the eye formation, it takes a lot of extra effort, uh, both like physically and also in terms of communication and planning. So my recommendation for most people watching would be to start with the Australian formation. It's really easy to do. Uh, it's just a matter of kind of wrapping your brain around the, the new normal for what, who covers what and like what the responsibilities are. But once you get the hang of that, it's not hard at all. The Australian formation, as we'll discuss, definitely has some some pretty legitimate obstacles, but it's also an incredible opportunity for players to really be in the driver's seat and take charge of points. Wonderful stuff, Ian. Appreciate that. And so, yeah, let's maybe go through the Australian first and maybe if you could walk us through the the duties of uh, each player and what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. The um, Australian formation is really easy because we'll discuss I formation separately, but with I formation, uh, the net player's got to get down low, low enough for the serving player to have to hit over the top of their head. Uh, hence, eye formation. Everything is lined up right down the middle of the courts, uh, more or less. And with the Australian formation, that's you don't have to do that. And so uh, different players have very different responsibilities than they would in a normal doubles point. Uh, we'll start with the server. The server, instead of being positioned off to the side, closer to the alley, is going to slide all the way over right to the center of the baseline. You can go all the way up to, but you can't cross over that, that little hash mark right in the middle. And you wanna take advantage of all of that space and go right up to the hash mark because after you hit your serve, the server is going to cover the down the line shot. So if you can, uh, if you're watching right now, you can imagine serving on the deuce sign, you'd wanna position yourself all the way up to the hash mark. And then immediately after completing your, your service motion, you're gonna shift over to your left to cover any returns that go down the alley or down the line. The net player is gonna line up on the other side of the court. So for a deuce side serve, normally the net player would add up, would line up in the add side box. But in Australian formation, the net player is lining up in the deuce side box. And the whole purpose for that is simply to put the net player right smack dab in the middle of the lane that the returning player normally is accustomed to hitting to. And even in like, team practices or lessons or clinics, coaches are very, very quick to talk bad about aiming down the line. It's like, oh, dude, don't hit down the alley unless it's like wide open or the player is poaching and like you've got to go the other way. And so what we're doing by placing that net player in the cross court position is forcing them to have to repeatedly hit the shot that they've probably never practiced before. Nobody goes out and practices down the alley returns of serve. Well, hardly anybody practices returns of serve anyway. But if you're a doubles player, everybody practices that cross-court shot again and again. That's the shot that they want to groove. 
That's a shot that they're most comfortable and confident with that they play a lot of doubles. And so we're taking the, the net player in Australian formation. We're swapping them over to the other box and we're saying, Hey, I'm going to start right here. And now you're going to go and try to hit down the alley. Uh, if you want to avoid me, the attacking player, the, the offensive player. So those are kind of like the, the basic building blocks servers shifting all the way up to the middle service partner is jumping over to the other box and that's kind of the the basic framework of what Australian formation is. Love that. And it's such a smart play, Ian, because like you mentioned, you're forcing the opponents to hit down the line. And as we all know, that down the line, the net is also higher. So right there, you're making them hit a tougher shot, uh, you know. So so that's a great uh, advantage as well. And so, Ian, as far as the this play, are there any ways to to, like, optimize... I guess like on the, either the net player side or the server side, like are there any particular shots they should be trying to, to hit or anything like that to, uh, to maximize the effectiveness of the Australian formation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in doubles, everybody, you know, this is how tennis goes in, in general. Everybody gets really hyper-focused on the sports center, top 10, like winners. Like those are the shots everybody kind of fixates on is like, Oh wow, that was incredible. And those are the ones that kind of stick in our head. But if, if you look at the patterns of where the ball goes, the vast majority of shots travel through the middle of the court, especially in doubles. Um, it's just the safest spot to, to hit. There's a big cross court direction that gets established very early because of the normal doubles, you know, formation. We have that kind of lane or, that, that hitting lane to hit to cross court. And so, so many balls travel through a, a window in the middle of the court, uh, to use a phrase from Craig O'Shaughnessy is big on the, the middle window and uh, doubles. And so basically, if you want to optimize the Australian formation or the I formation, you, you want to try to keep things moving to that middle window so that the net player can have the biggest possible opportunity to cut off the ball. That's what we're trying to do here is set up the net player. We want the net player to intercept as many shots as humanly possible, as early as possible in the points. And so ways that we can do that and kind of optimize for that play occurring are, number one, as a server, you want to aim as many serves down the middle of the court as possible or towards the body. Going out wide does two things. It geometrically opens up the alley, just hitting a straight ahead shot from a pulled out wide position for the returner makes hitting around the net player pretty easy when they're kind of in the middle of the courts or, or cross courts. Uh, it, it opens up a really obvious kind of visual lane for the returner to say, oh, wow, the net player is being goofy and they lined up cross courts. So if I'm getting pulled out wide, it's pretty easy for them to avoid the net player and just hit straight ahead. On the other hand, going down the tee or at the body maximizes the chance that the ball will go back down the center of the court again. And it it opens up the biggest opportunity for the net player to get a racket right on the very first shot. So as the serving player, that's what you can do to help your partner out. If you're not comfortable aiming your serve, start practicing. <laughs> because if you want to be a great doubles player, you, you have to be able to set up specific patterns and plays just like this one that make life easier on your partner and give them as many shots to be able to put away as possible. And then as a net player, you want to also try to cause that middle pattern to happen by simply cheating over as much as possible right from the beginning. In other words, just because you're covering cross court doesn't mean you should be in the middle of the deuce side box. If your partner is serving on the deuce side and you're covering cross court, you actually want to squeeze over towards the center service line as much as possible without getting in the way of your partner 
back behind you, which essentially turns into eye formation eventually. And you'll get a sense for this when you go out on the court and you maybe try it for the first time. Just kind of look back behind you and look at your, your partner uh, who's lining up to serve right next to the, the hash mark in the middle of the baseline. Uh, and just kind of look back and kind of scoot your way over towards the, the center service line and see how far you can go while still giving them an open, clear lane to be able to hit down the tee. If they can't see the tee, then they're going to start aiming further out wide. And now that's pushing the ball away from you and making it more difficult for you to actually get a racket on the return of serve. So long story short, we want to kind of focus things towards the middle and try to set up that net player as much as possible. And then once the point starts, once the, the serve has gone past you and into the box, as the net player, you want to squeeze that middle even more and really make things as uncomfortable as possible for the returner and really force them into a narrow lane right down the line. What you don't want to do is just kind of cover your side and sit right in the middle of the, the service box because that leaves a big chunk of court for the returner to hit straight ahead. You want to squeeze over as soon as the ball goes into the box. And if they're going to beat you cross court, then that's fine. But don't overcover it to the point where uh, you're not forcing them to uh, even try it at all. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that little preview of uh, Ian's session. Uh, definitely a fantastic one. And as I mentioned, uh, go to TennisFilesSummit.com to check that out. And we'll have the links on the show notes page at TennisFiles.com slash 94. So uh, this next preview that I want to play for you is from Alistair McCaw, a frequent guest of the podcast and my tennis summits as well. And he's going to be talking about the top seven mindset shifts you need to make to reach the next level. So let's run that clip right now. First question for you, Alistair, is... You know, I don't think enough people focus on the mental game as much as they should, and it's a really a game changer. So why do you think that we should focus um, a significant amount of our energies uh, on the mental game in order to become uh, a, a top performer? Uh, yeah, well, thank you. I mean, uh, f first of all, um, I also have to give credit to, to Jenny Robb, who, who helped me uh, write right. Champion Minded. So a, a lot of credit to her as well. So um, but yeah, why is the mental side so important, uh, so important for the game of tennis is because, um, we see that when you get to a certain skill level, whatever that may be, 3.5, whatever it may be, is that the skills are the same in terms of, um, the game. Um, however, the, the big difference comes down to the mindset, uh, how you're able to handle pressure moments, how you're able to, uh, play the score, so to say. And, and obviously stay calm under pressure. So, you know, a lot of the times people ask me what the difference is between the good and the great. Um, one of my examples is always if you go watch the top 100 tennis players practice, and let's say you didn't know who number one was and number 100 was, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference or, or, or give the rankings if you didn't know who Roger Federer was or who was the, the 100th ranked player. Uh, however, when it comes down to playing points, and competing, that is where we see the separation between the good and the great. And uh, that, that same applies to whatever level you might be at, uh, be it at a 3.5 uh, level, for example, um, is that it really comes down to the mindset. So uh, players that are able to stay positive, players that are able to stay um, calm under pressure to make good decisions, uh, not to panic. Those are the players that we see usually come through with uh, with better results. Sometimes not all the time, but 
but most of the times, and you know, for any level of player, the mindset is a game is a is a part of the game that is important. Um, and uh, and obviously, to maximize your potential, uh, you know, working on your mindset skills is is a big advantage. And you know, just like your game skills, um, they don't come naturally. You have to work on your mindset. Mindset is a skill, just like learning how to serve, learning how to hit a, a volley. Um, you know, training your mind to be positive, training your mind to be calm and clear under pressure. Those are trained skills. And, uh, you know, a lot of players want to become more positive. They want to become these mental tough, let's call it players, but they don't intentionally go to work on their mental skills. Um, a lot talk about it, but they don't invest in, for example, um, a session with a mindset coach or even right here, right now, which your viewers are obviously doing is that they're investing in their game. They're investing in their mindset. So they are taking steps towards improving their mindset. And I acknowledge them for that. Um, however, you have to go to work on it. Um, it's all good and well watching uh, tennis videos, instructional videos. However, it's no good if you're not putting it into practice. So for sure, uh, Mirvan, that the mindset is a huge, huge um, skill and an advantage in the game of tennis, no matter what level you're at. Gotcha, Alistair. Really appreciate that. And to take it maybe a step further, I mean, it's very clear that we, you know, especially from what you said, that we have to work on these things consistently. Um, so let's say a player, like, you know, they watch uh, videos and, and they, they learn, but then what are some, like maybe a couple examples of like actual action steps to putting what they learn uh, in practice? Sure. Um, there's always one question I love to ask a player is, well, it's actually an exercise. And it's when I consult players and we do that over Skype or we do that, for example, if, if I'm, I'm traveling, is I ask them to write this simple thing on a piece of paper. And I encourage your, your viewers to do this as well. And it's, and it's this. It's, I play my best when I. And I ask them to complete that sentence. And I ask them to think about it. You know, not just, just, not just to write there, when I feel positive and happy, okay, that's, that's a pretty uh, obvious answer. But I ask players to think about this question. So I ask them to go back in their data bank, in their history, and think about when they played their best or they had their best tournament or their best matches. What did it look like? What did it feel like? What were they thinking? Um, what did they feel like when they were 40 love down? Uh, you know, where, so I want them to go back to those, those times where they felt they were playing their best and recognize why they played their best tennis. Were they happy? Were they energetic? Were they, uh, did they have great self-talk? Uh, did they feel relaxed or did they feel they had nothing to lose? Uh, what was it when, that helped them play their best? So that's a, an important question, first of all. That's an exercise is write down, I play my best when I, and complete the sentence. Second thing of all is that, you know, cue words are very, very powerful. So um, I'll give an example of how different players respond to different words. And this is so important in coaching as well. So I was consulting at a, a college three weeks ago who are a top 20 school, a top NCAA school. And um, I asked the one player, describe two words that would help you perform better. And I want you to write these down on the grip of your racket. And she came up with the words, if I can remember, intensity and uh, energy. Okay, great. That works for you, intensity and energy. Fantastic. Write it down. I asked the next player, what two words work for you? 
And she said, calm and relaxed. Now, there are, there are two complete opposite um, uh, keywords or, or helpful words. However, that player recognizes that they play best when they're intense, energy, moving feet, whatever it may be. And the other player, player is better when they're calm, relaxed. So it's different for each person. And that's why I, we use that simple exercise. And this is gold. This is champion-minded gold right here. Is discover why you play your best tennis. What is it? Is it calm, relaxed? Is it energetic? Is it what is it? And then write that down and look at it. Look at it before you play. Look at it while you play. So it reminds you that when I play like this, I play my best tennis. And it's a very, very simple exercise. Wow, Alistair, those are awesome. I mean, seriously, like I've actually never heard of the uh, writing the two words on the uh, grip of your racket, but that's wonderful because it's obviously very apparent and you can look at it whenever you'd like to uh, to trigger a positive, uh, great performance. And, and also... And you know, and you know Mirban, that, that girl, um, it was a women's team, um, you know, she, she sent me a photo four or five days later, uh, out of the blue of the grip of her racket. I didn't know who it was from. I didn't recognize the number. And she said, this really worked. And a week later, uh, she broke into the top 10 on, of the singles of the NCAA uh, women's for the first time. And, uh, I'm not going to take credit for that, but she definitely said that but by focusing on just those two words, um, I think hers were, as we said, uh, calm and relaxed. She said it really helped her to, to, you know, she saw it on her grip of her racket. So sometimes she's spinning her racket when she's returning or she's sitting during a changeover looking at her grip or whatever. And it just, she said it just helped me to stay in the process of being that in, in, in that frame. So, you know, there you go. It, it, it really worked for her. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, Alistair, appreciate that awesome advice. And also when your first piece of advice, which is writing, completing the sentence of I play best when I, which I think that's what you said. Um, I, for me, as soon as you said that, that, uh, that I feel like that triggered discipline for me because I immediately thought, oh, I play my best when I perform my dynamic warm up and I eat correctly and, you know, I'm a, I have a positive mindset. And that right there, you know, if you ask yourself that, then you're instantly going to be catapulted into positive actions, uh, most likely to get you to play better. So, I mean, both are really incredible. Uh, yeah, yours, yours, yours is obviously the preparation, um, yeah. which is important, very important as well, is that. You know, uh, top players have routines before they go on the court. They eat a certain meal at a certain time. Um, in Champion Minded, to talk about prepper readiness, which you probably recognize that word, where it's that hour before you play, um, you start to develop a routine that you do all the time. And, and for example, um, one of the pro players I worked with a few years back who reached top 30 in the world, um, an American player, he would have a countdown. So 60, 60 minutes before he'd have a snack, 50 minutes before he'd like to shower, um, 40 minutes before he'd like to check his equipment, his, his grips, his rackets, 30 minutes before he'd like to talk to the coach, 20 minutes before he'd start his warm-up. So he had a countdown that um, was his preparation, like you just spoke about there. I play my best when I prepare like this. And, and again, this is, this, is exclusive, uh, this is not exclusive to professional players is that match this weekend, your club match or your high school match or your um, USTA match, whatever it may be, may be important to you this weekend because you practice, you work hard, you love the game. 
and you want to do your best. How do I get myself into the best mind for this? And it's simple strategies just done really well. So develop a, a, a preparation routine before your match. What gets you in the best frame of mind? Some players like to listen to music. Some players like to be left alone. Some players like to be around other people to distract them so they don't start thinking about the match. So find what works for you. And then, of course, the one I was talking about, Mirban, was performance. Was when I'm performing my best, I am like this. That means when I'm on the court and it's showtime. Gotcha, Alistair. Great stuff. And so with that, I want to transition to the seven uh, top mental mindset shifts. And, you know, after reading your book, I, I, I kind of went through and tried to pick uh, seven that I thought were particularly powerful that we should uh, cover. Um, and you cleared them, which I appreciate. Um, but the, the first one, Alistair, that I want you to talk about is um, how can we shift our attitudes from expecting mediocrity, a lot of us frankly do, uh, to striving for excellence. Yeah, a lot of us have a, a predetermined tendency to, to look back at the past and think that's what's going to happen in the future. And a lot of us sometimes hold on to what's happened in the past and almost attract uh, that same thing. So for example, oh boy, here we go again, drop my serve at three all, same story, and you start to attract those things to yourself. So but getting back to the very start, when you mentioned the words mediocrity and, and, and excellence, um, the very first book I ever wrote and the very first chapter and first line I ever wrote was it all starts with your standards. And are you willing to accept mediocrity or are you aiming for excellence? And excellence is open to all of us. Excellence is, again, not one of those exclusive things. And excellence can mean different things to different people, just like success can. You know, one of the things I always, always ask people is, you want, do you want to be successful? And they say, yes. And I said, well, what does success mean to you? And they type of think, well, they don't have a clear answer. So, you know, you've got to define what that is for yourself. But um, if you're so stuck on holding you, you, you see, part of our brain is programmed the same way of what we think about the past is, is that we think about the, the, the future as well. So it's reprogramming the brain on what you want from, from, you know, what result you want from, from what you're doing. And there's many different techniques that can help with that. For example, visualization or meditation can help you get into the present or uh, visualize what you want it to be. Um, words have a very powerful effect as well of instead of thinking at 30 uh, or, or, or 1530, uh, oh, here we go again. This is always the point that I type of mess up is I love this opportunity. This is when I play my best tennis. I, I love to feel this feeling of, of pressure. And talking about pressure, and I know we're jumping a little bit around here, but it all gets back down to the same thing is um, who are you when it comes down to that moment of, of, of pressure? And Greg Luganis, maybe some of you might remember Greg Luganis. He was a famous Olympic diver. And he described uh, pressure as there's two ways of seeing pressure. Some see pressure as, um, as stress and anxiety and, and threat. And the, the, the other side see um, pressure as excitement and opportunity. And it's how you see those moments. It's how you've programmed those moments. If you're going back in your head, in your history bank, and you're bringing back those memories of, um, of failure, of um, 
of, of repeating the same things again. You know, you're only attracting that into your present and into your future. So <clears throat> it really is about reprogramming the brain. Um, and like I said, simple techniques like visualization can really help that. Is visualizing yourself at that, that point in the match or uh, deciding point, let's just say you're playing doubles, um, and, and saying, this is, I love this opportunity. This is, I'm going to, you know, go for that shot or, 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 you know, play this point the way I, I want to play this point. And, you know, are you going to win it all the time? No, but definitely your chances are going to be a lot greater than playing with fear. All right. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that little preview clip with Alistair uh, from Tennis Summit 2019. And obviously, you know, some of the sessions here, they, they've been recorded um, before the summit. So that's why I'm able to play them in case you didn't figure that one out. But uh, in any case, here is the third session for you. And that is from Sarah Stone. So Sarah, Sarah Stone recorded a, a session with me for the summit. And this one is on applying on-court coaching principles to your tennis matches. And Sarah Stone has coached a lot of uh, world-class professional players. So uh, her insight is always welcome. And she was on the summit last year as well. So let's run that clip right now. So first off, for some people who maybe don't know about this concept of on-court coaching, can you kind of describe for us um, in basic terms uh, what it is and how it works? So on-court coaching is something that the WTA put into the tour. It's not done on the ATP tour, so it's only on the women's side. And it's where the coach can come onto the court once a set and chat to the player over the change of ends break. If they want, they can do that at the end of the set, which is a longer break. But as I said, you're only allowed to do it once per set. That would count during the set or at the end of the set. So once you've done that, the only other time you can come out is if the player, your opponent takes a toilet break or if they take an injury timeout break. So then your coach is allowed to come out onto the court and sit with you and talk about whatever for that the duration of that. So sometimes those toilet breaks can be 10 minutes. So it's a good opportunity to hang out with your coach and just chat about whatever your strategy or what you need to do in the match. Fantastic, Sarah. And so, of course, you know, the purpose of on-court coaching isn't to, for the coaches to get on the camera and get famous or anything. But no. I mean, what, what is what would you say is the true purpose of on-court coaching? It's interesting because I read a lot of things that are quite negative about on-court coaching, that the women need help. Can't they figure it out themselves and things like that? It wasn't the players that asked for the on-court coaching. It was the WTA trying to implement a new initiative to make tennis more exciting and to make the viewers learn more about the game while they're watching. So I think for club players or people playing leagues, by having the access to what those coaches are saying during the match, it's it's a great learning tool for your club player to know that they're dealing with the same kinds of pressure and what could they do in their their matches so that they can win more matches basically. So I think it's disappointing that it's, it has this negative energy about it and that women can't think for themselves. Women can completely think for themselves. It's just something that the WTA wanted to do. Why, why do I think it's an advantage? Well, because coaches are coaching anyway. Every coach, every match, they're saying something that's coaching. It might be, uh, come on, get up to that ball or you can do it, be aggressive. But by the rules, by the code of conduct, saying to a player be aggressive is technically coaching. So there'll be times when coaches can speak another language and they'll reel off stuff that the central umpire or the lines people can't understand. So that's a huge advantage to non-English speaking 
coaches. So I really like that the WTA's done that. And I'd love to see the ATP do it. They do it in junior tennis. They do it in college tennis. They do it in Davis Cup and Fed Cup. I think if they do it in all other sports, we need to make our sport as exciting as possible. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. For sure, Sarah. And uh, what comes to mind for me uh, while you were speaking is uh, Labor Cup, too. I mean, there's so many clips of, you know, yeah, of how in love everybody was to watch these, you know, the players being coached by both the coaches and other players, especially. Um, And that was so great for the game. So many shares and and social likes. So uh, exactly. I mean, that's what that's what we have to do with Roger, with his coaching of Sasha that and and everyone saw that over and over and over and over. How else are we going to promote our sport? It's got to be a unique angle other than just hitting a ball. Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's very useful, of course. And um, at least for my research uh, in in USA leagues, that's allowed during certain points of the match as well. Um, And and so to that end, what mistakes have you seen? Because I'm, you know, I know that you're an avid follower, of course, of the tour. And so what mistakes have you seen uh, certain coaches make uh, during the on-court coaching sessions? Yeah, it's really interesting because it seems to be the same mistakes that they make in that 90 seconds that they make on the court when they're working with a player. Because as coaches, what, what we're there for is to help people get better. And we're trying to fix something all the time. So we want to give advice or how do you do that better? How do you do this better? And you give too much information. So a lot of players will be watching this, club players, top players. I know you have a really big audience. You need to remember that sometimes you might need to say to your coach, okay, let's just focus on maybe two things because that's all I can absorb. There's coaches that go out there and they say, hit there, do this is do that, do something else, do something else. Okay, you, you look a little bit tired. Do you have a headache? This It's just an information overload. And and it's quite stressful when you go out and you have to do that. I mean, right before I know that the player will probably call me out, I'll say to the box and the people sitting with me, okay, I got to get ready. What am I going to say when I get out there? And I actually sometimes run it by the people that I'm sitting with to make sure I'm very clear on what I'm going to say when I get out there. I probably change it especially when you're running out in front of a full stadium. I mean, I know they're not watching you, but it's, it's pressure and you're on TV and you have to say the right thing or, or they pound you in social media. So I think overcoaching is a big problem generally in sports. So it, coaches need to be specific. The players need to advocate for themselves at clubs to the coaches. All right, now tell me what is the main thing that I really need to be focusing on if the coach is going too far with too many things. Gotcha, Sarah. Okay, so so I guess to try to recap, like you're really trying to just focus and hone in on exactly what it is that needs to uh, the player needs to focus on, and not too many instructions. Simplify so that the player can focus. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you do, if you're trying to think of four things at once, you can't do it, especially when you're under pressure, or especially even when you're in a private lesson. It might be if you're working on you need to get your racket head more underneath the ball. You could maybe add in there, get your racket head underneath the ball and make sure you finish the shot. But that's about it. You can't then say, 
We'll make sure you also load your right leg, um, turn, and make sure your, your racket at shoulder height when you make your unit turn on your forehand and it extends all the way back. I mean, you just it's not even possible to think of those things. So if the command is from the coach, get your racket head under the ball, that's about, that's about all you can do. What coaches will do is they'll, if they give an instruction and then the player doesn't do what they're, they're trying to get them to do, they might change the way that they're trying to achieve it. They'll do a slight variation of the drill. Do you want to stay focused on the one thing until the player's able to grasp it and then you can move on to the shoulder turn or prepare earlier or things like that. Gotcha, Sarah. Great stuff. And so I, I guess to maybe categorize the types of things that you tell the players, like what, I mean, is there like a certain category that you tend to tackle the most? Cause you just mentioned technique. Sometimes you'll talk about that, but I, of course there's like the mental part of it. And then sometimes there's a strategy. So like, is it like pretty even as far as like when you'll like a frequency of, of talking about those things during a match or do you find yourself going to like maybe the mental side more or something like that? Yeah. Well, it's a really good question. Naturally I'm pretty much invested in technical coaching. That's a side of tennis that I really enjoy. Some coaches really like the mental side and that's their whole focus in what they're doing. I think for Alex, who we talked about Krunic, I could possibly have been a little bit too technical for her. That's not so much her mindset. But my belief is is that how you hit the ball will make you successful. So if you take care of the, little, the every hit and every hit is a, it's a good shot, then you'll play well. So I tried to work with her around what would be the best thing for her, even though naturally that's the way I wanted to coach. And for her it was more about, uh, belief and mo- getting motivated and, and feeling like she could do it. And, and you deal with lots of different things when you're sitting there on the court, all sorts of thoughts come through your head. It's the same in league matches. You might think, oh, if I win this, I'm going to go from a 3-5 three, three, to a 4-0. Oh, and if I don't, my team will think I'm not that good and maybe they won't like me anymore and they won't want me to play. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to have to find a new club. And before you know it, you're finding a new club and you're trying to find new players to play with, and actually you're just like uh, set point down in the first set. You have to really try to stay in the present moment. So it's the same with the players on tour. You want to just try and keep them playing point after point and really just don't get distracted too much. There's so many distractions. The hardest thing I think in tennis is the mental side is to stay focused when you have to be focused. Yeah, for sure, Sarah. And to that end, like, do you have any sort of – like go-tos or like cues or, or anything like that or to something to visualize like when you have your player um, like having trouble with like, I don't know, outside distractions or something like that? Like is there something that you tend to tell them that maybe we could tell ourselves? Everybody's different. So I think people need to work on what it is, their mantra or their affirmation, what works for them. And it's not really for a coach can give you a few signposts and suggestions, but it's something that has to resonate with the individual. But the number one thing is you you have to have a between point routine. It has to be the same every single time. So you finish the point. Do you go to your strings? How far do you walk behind the baseline? We are creatures of habit. That's the same thing in tennis. We need to know exactly what we're going to be doing. So for a player, for example, it might be win or lose the point, it's the same reaction. They turn around, they go to their strings, they go to their strings as just a central, uh, like a focus point instead of kind of looking around. 
So it brings their, it narrows their focus. They walk back. They go through. Maybe they quickly assess the point. It's not necessarily in this order. It depends on the player. They might assess the point. They might relax. They may think about at a certain stage of the routine, they think about what they're going to do in the next point and then they get ready to play. So something club players can work on with their coaches is what are they going to do with those 20 seconds between the last hit and the next hit? How many times are they going to bounce the ball before they serve? I can't tell you how many kids and adults I've worked with, they bounce at one, six, ten, two. It's it's so inconsistent. So if you want to do anything well in tennis, you have to repeat it over and over. And that's what the pros do so well. They're able to stay on task and that stops them getting distracted because they're in that routine and they, and they stay on it. Yeah, it's a great point there. And I think of uh, Andre Agassi, so, somebody on the uh, some pod, I can't remember the podcast, but they mentioned that Agassi, he would uh, always slap his leg to help him reset, you know, if you know, yeah. once he made a mistake. So that's like one example too. Um, but great advice there. And um, Sarah, like when you have uh, a player, and and you're going to do do encore coaching. Do you at all change up or vary what you say to the player depending on the stage of the match? Like whether it's um, I don't know the beginning or or even if let's say like if they're down a lot versus like if it's close or things like that. Do you ever vary what you do? Yeah, it's it varies every time you go out. There's times that are very frustrating for a coach because I've gone out there and I remember one time Alexa Glatch was playing Nicole Gibbs in uh, at the pilot pen at New Haven and I went out four times because she had an injury timeout and I said, if you, if you won't hit your backhand down the line and then move forward, you're going to lose the match because you need to be able to, you're sitting in a cross-court rally and she's just wearing you down. And you down the line backhand's your best shot, but she's too afraid to take to pull the trigger. And at one point, she wanted me to go out onto the court for the fourth time, and I and I said, I said to her, "Are you sure you want me to come out on the court?" Because I felt like, well, what she maybe she should sit with herself and figure out what she wanted to do. Because I was coming out and telling her, and she didn't want to do it anyway. So it's hard as a coach because the players and I see feedback in social media and they say, Oh, the player's not looking at the coach, looking them in the eye. It's disrespectful, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of those armchair people have never been out on that court under that pressure playing for that. I wonder what they do in their job when they're super stressed and their boss is there. Do they look them square in the eye and be, Oh yes, boss. You know, you've got it. These, these are people out there playing tennis. They're not robots. And it might be sometimes they're losing and you just tell them to hang in there or they're up and you try to just sit out there with them and say, hey, you're doing a good job. You know, I really believe in you. Let's keep going. I know you can do this. They might just need that um, reaffirming or things like that. So it's really up. it's It's a skilled coach to know what to say at the right time and that's something you learn over time and you make mistakes and eventually hopefully you get it right at the right time. But it really just depends on the player's personality. All right. Hope you enjoyed that little preview clip from Sarah. And now our final clip for this episode uh, from Tennis Summit 2019 is from Jeff Rothschild, who is a fantastic dietitian among uh, many other accomplishments. And he's also an NSCA certified strength and conditioning specialist uh, with a master's degree in nutritional science. And he's going to talk about the diet trends and what works best for competitive tennis players. So let's run that clip right now. 
Let's jump into it. We'll talk about again, kind of these different trends in in diets that people have heard about. So we'll look about we'll look and talk about the paleo diet. We'll talk about the whole thirty. We'll talk about the keto diet or ketogenic diet. We'll look at a vegan diet, and we'll talk about some forms of fasting. But just quickly about me, you gave a, an excellent introduction, so I'll, I'll I guess I'll skip over this. But um, I said I have a, a, a long background playing tennis working with tennis players, uh, coaching college tennis. So hopefully I can, you know, share some of what I've learned over the years with, with the, uh, with you today, Mervin. Awesome. So let's jump right into the paleo diet. So people have probably heard about this. It's, I say, been fairly popular for a while now. And essentially it's avoiding grains, legumes, or beans and dairy products, as well as processed foods and refined sugar. So what does that leave? Essentially meat, fish, chicken, et cetera, and vegetables, nuts and seeds, fruit, starches, and again, no sugar. So foods that would, you would be fi- uh, that you would find on the paleo diet, again, kind of what, what you might expect, the things we just talked about, essentially whole foods, real foods, whereas things on, like on the right side of the screen, not on the paleo diet, um, essentially any processed foods. So the first question, like, is it legit? Meaning, is there any science behind it? And, and the answer is, is yes. Um, we see this is just one study where the a paleo diet, this type of template, improved lipid co- uh, concentration. So people that had a high cholesterol had um, their, their cholesterol levels improved more than a traditional dietary recommendation for a heart-healthy diet. Uh, we also see that it uh, outperforms, uh, in this case, Nordic nutrition recommendations. Uh, um, regarding like fat mass and abdominal obesity and triglyceride triglyceride levels, as well as uh, blood pressure and glucose tolerance, and again, lipid profiles, even without weight loss. So the answer is yes, it, it is definitely legit. Like, so there's, you can't, you couldn't say, um, that, you know, this is going to be harmful in most cases. Also, I should take a sidestep and say, with everything we talk about today, this is um, general, um, you know, consensus for most people, for healthy people, for you know, the, the entire population of anyone who might be listening. Now, of course, if there are people with specific medical conditions that requires, um, you know, working with a specialist and, and obviously, you know, you have to consider your individual situation um, in the context of anything we talk about. So that said, again, with, uh, a, let's say, a, a generally healthy person, the paleo diet is, you know, quote, legit. Now, the question of, is it for me? That's another question now. So, you know, we can say on one hand, yes, there's science backing it, but is it, is it appropriate for me or for you? Um, it can be restrictive, not terribly restrictive once you get used to it, but, but it can be. Um, it's, it's not necessarily low carb, but it's kind of low carb. So I think it's wrong for people to think it's just like no carbs and all meat. That's, that's an um, inaccurate portrayal. Typically, um, potatoes would certainly be okay, but even white rice, and I know technically white rice is a grain, but most people in the paleo sphere, um, you know, with, when, when we're talking about someone healthy and especially someone doing sports, no one really gets too bothered about white rice. Um, so it can be low carb, but it doesn't have to be. Hmm. Now, when we talk about the whole 30 diet, it's essentially the same thing. You're avoiding sugar and, and grains and legumes and dairy and these baked goods, and they want you to do it essentially for 30 days to, you know, get a sense of, of what happens. So is it legit? Yeah, it's actually just a branded paleo diet. Um, and they, they include some social support. So you might see this, that logo, it's, you know, certain foods are whole 30 approved. They've got cookbooks, you get emails. So again, it's, it's, they've taken the paleo diet and kind of, um, really, like I said, yeah, branded it, 
provided um, some encouragement. You know, you'll get emails on certain days. So it's, it can be a useful, uh, useful tool. So again, is it for you? Well, it's probably worth a try for most people, but, and this is important, you want to make sure you get enough carbohydrate if you're playing a lot of tennis, for example, or if you're, you know, generally doing any high intensity of exercise, high intensity exercise. Um, and you still, you can do that. Um, you just have to be a little bit, um, let's say strategic with it. So then, oh, did you have a question? Oh yeah, uh, Jeff, thanks. So I was curious about legumes, which <laughs> to me is a fancy word for, I guess, mostly beans, but uh, yeah. what, what's the rationale? Cause I've heard a lot of great stuff about beans, uh, uh, like why, why they take beans out of there. Yeah, you know, there, there's. I really think there's not a lot of great rationale. I think it was initially like uh, something. I don't know where actually where it stems from exactly, but there's there's some things in beans that inhibit um, absorption of other nutrients. But the thing is, and there's things called lectins, which are some people might have heard of that are you know essentially not good. These plant defense mechanisms. However, when you prepare them properly, like cooking the beans, and especially if you've soaked them and germinated them, those things, those harmful things, really. Uh, basically go away, disappear. So there's, I don't think there's a compelling reason to avoid beans. Um, so, you know, and again, most people that are in the paleo world, uh, maybe I shouldn't say most people, but many people that are, you know, otherwise healthy and they, they um, you know, essentially just feel better or, or they, they, they're fine when they have beans. Some people that have, let's say, gut issues or maybe some autoimmune issues, they just don't tolerate um, any of the beans very well. And that could be for a variety of reasons related to gas and for, you know, just usually digestive issues. So I guess it's, if you take like someone who's not well, not, not super healthy, you want to eliminate all these foods that can potentially be problematic. But if we're talking about a healthy person, um, you know, there's, I don't see any um, legit reason to avoid beans. Perfect. Jeff. And sorry, one other follow up here is, uh, uh, to clarify, you mentioned white rice is generally okay in this diet. Uh, what about uh, brown rice? Yeah, so again, that's um, brown rice, in my opinion, is totally fine. Um, the difference between white and brown, broadly speaking, is brown will have more nutrients. So you're getting fiber and some more vitamins than is in white rice, but it might be a little bit hard to digest for some people. So um, white rice is, you just think of it as just pure, like pure carbohydrate, pure glucose, nothing else. Um, you know, that much nutritious in there, but there's nothing else that's really going to cause too much digestive issue. So again, if we think about people that ha might have some type of gut issues, white rice can be the safer choice. Um, I think it's, I, I don't see any problem with brown rice again, for someone that doesn't bother, but I do know again, people that, um, I just don't tolerate it well. Again, it just maybe gives them stomach issues or something like that. So. Gotcha, Jeff. And sorry, I have another okay. question. Uh, yeah. I've seen in Costco and actually consume this, but they have like light brown rice and i'm just curious because i didn't to be honest read up on that much like is that just like a hybrid where it has like some nutrients but not as much as fully brown rice probably um i haven't i don't know the exactly what you're talking about but it, but essentially there's like i would think it's a degree of like how refined the rice mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. so that yeah. makes sense yeah cool thanks cool all right so yeah so getting past that then we can talk about the ketogenic diet or the keto diet and that's essentially a very low carbohydrate diet. So less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day, and it's very high in fat. So the carbohydrates typically would come from just vegetables. Um, you know, you're going to get, even though we don't think of like green vegetables and, and tomatoes and things like that as carbohydrate foods, there is some in there. So if you're just, essentially there, you know, less than 50 
it's just going to, they're kind of going to just show up a little bit. Um, so put it another way, you're just avoiding carbs as much as possible. And then you have to, again, have very high fat. So you actually have to add fats typically. So is it legit? Yeah, there is lots of research available and um, it's, you know, in, in largely speaking, not harmful though there, you could argue some, some people don't seem to tolerate it well, meaning some people's cholesterol and things will go in the wrong direction on a ketogenic diet. But overall, most people can be quite, you know, can be quite healthy with the diet. So you can't say inherently it's unhealthy, but there is some important nuances there. So one, is it, is it for me? So it's very restrictive. Um, and the, a couple of the important things, you need to include a range of vegetables and a range of fats. So what I mean is technically, if you just ate like bacon all day, you know, you'd be in ketosis or on a keto diet. Um, but the, the range of vegetables give you these different uh, types of fiber. So you want to include, you know, the different leafy greens and, and all different colored vegetables because the one, the things that give fruit and vegetables the color are what give a lot of the health benefits to us. And they, um, all the vegetables will have different types of fiber. So you want to get this variety of fiber in your diet. So that's super, super important. And also not just having, uh, again, just to pick on bacon, only bacon, but a mix of plant fats and animal fats. Um, so it might be some butter and or ghee and uh, avocado and olive oil and, and things like that. So you're really uh, kind of diversifying, even though it's, it's within the context of a fairly, let's say, restrictive diet, you still can be quite diverse if you want to do it. See, optimally. I don't think this is ideal for tennis. Um, uh, out of all the diets we'll talk about today, this is probably the least ideal for tennis. If someone has, you know, you, you might hear about people losing 80, 100 pounds on this type of diet, it can be effective for these huge, um, you know, large amounts of weight loss. Um, but I'm sure potentially some people listening to this might fall into that category. But if someone is, let's say, on a, if they're not looking for weight loss, um, I would not recommend it. Um, some people, you know, you read about claims of, of brain function and clarity and things like that. Um, there's more nuance to that. And, and I think it's, it's not this magic bullet to make you a genius. Uh, I think if you do have like brain fog on carbohydrate, there's a different issue going on and that's worth fixing that instead of just trying to, uh, you know, have a ketogenic diet. So, um, so I don't want to, I don't think we need to spend too much time on that because I really don't think it's ideal for someone playing, uh, appreciable amounts of tennis or doing high intensity exercise. That takes us to, in some ways, the opposite, and that would be a vegan diet. So that's no animal products. Now, of course, there's vegetarian and there's pescatarian and, and several shades in between, um, but I really want to just focus on the vegan diet because it's, it's let's say, fairly clear cut. Vegetarians, the, so the difference, vegan is no animal products. Vegetarians might include eggs or dairy, so products of animals, but without the animals themselves. And then again, m many... Um, so are some vegetarians will also eat fish and things like that. So let's just focus on vegan diet for a minute because that's actually gotten quite uh, popular. Is it legit? Um, I guess I would say kind of. You can be healthy, but I do question the long-term, like whether you could be healthy uh, long-term without a lot of supplements. It does, um, you know, and this is a, a list that not necessarily everyone um, on a vegan diet needs to worry about, but the common uh, deficiencies or things people don't get enough of on a vegan diet might just be calories overall or protein, vitamin B12, iron, all, all these things in here. Um, so they can be supplemented, but you know we, we typically want to get it from food um, for a number of reasons. So I guess I'm a little um, less um, 
thrilled about a vegan diet. Typically, if I have vegan clients, I consider it a win if I can get them to sneak in some type of fish or or egg or or protein powder. That's you know um, because I I want them to be, have a complete complete diet. All right, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and the previews, and hopefully they kind of whetted your appetite for you know learning more about those sessions. They're all great ones, and as I mentioned on the previous podcast episode, we've got anywhere from like five to seven sessions each of six days of content, so that's like over 30 videos uh, and sessions on single strategy, double strategy, technique on the serve forehand backhand volleys, uh, footwork, fitness, and the mental game. So a ton of fantastic masterclasses, as I like to call them, because these are all being uh, presented by the top, you know, the best minds that I can find and reach. And they're all incredible, really. But people like Paul Anacone, Rick Macy, Will Hamilton, my good friend uh, from Fuzziola Balls, Ian Westerman uh, from Essential Tennis and so on. And uh, so definitely something that you really want to check out and highly encourage you to do it. Um, it's free to sign up and free to watch all the videos for a limited time. Uh, there's also a lifetime pass option, but uh, whatever works best for you is what you should do. And so go to TennisFilesSummit.com or TennisFiles.com slash summit. So I definitely would really appreciate it if you would check that out and support the event. Um, each year I put in, I don't know, like four months of work of just contacting and following up so many emails, probably thousands of emails each year uh, for the guests and putting together all the web pages and the emails and um, trying to promote the summit and everything. Um, so yeah, um, really a great event. I really enjoy it. Uh, that's the key there. Otherwise I definitely wouldn't be <laughs> putting in the hundreds of hours to create this event. But I think what really, uh, makes me enjoy it the most is all of these wonderful emails that I've probably gotten, you know, hundreds already from you guys, uh, just saying how happy you are that the summit is going to be, uh, taking place this year and how excited you are for the uh, sessions and you know specifically what you want to hear from the sessions to help you in your game and your journey, tennis journey and we're also going to have uh, several live sessions like Q&A sessions question and answer sessions so you can feel free to hop on in and ask your questions there and so the key is to go to tennisfilesummit.com or tennisfiles.com slash summit19 and to register and once you do that you'll receive your free ticket to watch all the sessions and you'll receive some bonuses too actually uh, kick serve mastery from my good friend Peter Freeman from Crunch Time Coaching he's actually giving that away to every single person who signs up to the summit. So imagine just, you know, signing up, just putting in your first name and email and you're getting the ability to watch all the summit sessions plus the KickServe Mastery course. I mean, and that's a premium course like with, I forget, like 11, 12 modules or something like that. So it's really like incredible, you know, and also like all the other summit coaches. I mean, we're all about giving you the best content that we can and providing as much value because we really truly are fulfilled by you all improving your game and uh, just, you know, just spreading the love for this game, uh, this incredible game of tennis. So 
Uh, with that being said, please go to TennisFilesSummit.com or TennisFiles.com slash Summit19 to register for the event. And of course, hit that big juicy subscribe button for the podcast in your favorite podcast app. And one more thing is to just read you a quote as I often love to do at the end of the show. And this one is by Unknown, but I like it. And the unknown individual here says... Each day, wake up and ask yourself what will make you feel most alive that day. Love this advice. Um, will definitely increase your happiness and uh, it'll help you uh, really enjoy life to the fullest and follow your passion. So with that being said, thank you so much for all your support. I hope to see you at the summit, uh, which if I didn't mention uh, in this episode, which I did the last, it's going to be from May 14th to May 19th, and we're actually going to have a kickoff event at night planned, uh, well, night Eastern time anyway, planned with Peter Freeman on that Monday, the 13th, tentatively for 9 p.m. Eastern. But you'll receive more details if you register at TennisFileSummit.com. <laughs> so in any case, thanks so much, everybody. And I will continue to put out the best content I can for you all. So with that, all the best. And I'll see you at, on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast and the Tennis Summit 2019. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.